keep going. That's right. Got some notes to get through. Let me just hold, yeah, hold the button down and see what happens. Shiny's 160 as well. Let's pray that in. Before I do, uh, to my left, uh, we have a rosebud. Uh, if you're new to Mitchell Road, that signifies a birth in our community. This one was flown in from Tokyo, and it belongs to Jonas and Christina Davison, who are missionaries of ours in Tokyo, uh, their newborn child, Ian Jonas Davison. Remember to pray for them as they minister in Tokyo. Think about this moving to a 700-square-foot apartment with three kids during the middle of a global pandemic, not knowing the language, and then having a child there. So they have really been through it. We need to pray for them and our other missionaries. Let's pray. Father, we are really thankful uh, for who you are and that you give us community. We know uh, that harvest is plentiful. There's so many needs around this world. We think about uh, those in Japan that Jonas and Christina serve through the arts and through church planning, that shame-based culture, and the fact that the gospel takes away that walk of shame and gives them freedom. We think about people who are ministering right now in Africa, war-torn Africa, that horrendous civil war that continues to rampage Ethiopia the missionaries there behind the scenes that are just trying to keep people safe and fed. Over half a million lost already. Father, we think about the uh, spiritual forces at work in places like Haiti or the DR or other places of Latin America where it seems like evil has a foothold. Uh, we think about places like the Eastern Bloc where it's just cold and people have been so hardened to Christianity and they have a hard time believing that there's a God who could give compassion. And Father, even in a Greenville, South Carolina, where it's so nice here, we live in such a nice place. The people are nice, the weather's nice, the restaurants are nice, everything's great. And yet at the same time, we pass by people every day that are dead in sins and transgressions and who are inside weeping but on the outside they have a facade that everything's going great but they desire and they long for something they can really delight in so we during this service we pray that we would live out what it says in psalm 37 that we would delight ourselves in the lord that we would really during this worship service cherish you and love you as we come to this communion table in a few short minutes that you would remind us that you've given us everything we need for life and for godliness. And not only have you loved us, but you've paid for all of our sins and you've given us the Holy Spirit as that still small whisper. And so we, may we pay attention to that, to your spirit in us. And may we live according to it. And on this weekend where we celebrate freedom, we do want to celebrate the true freedom of no longer having to be enslaved to our sins because of the power of of the cross. And so, Father, with all the things happening around this world, we pray that above all else, you would make us worshipers of you. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. There are four ways in which you get to know who an individual is. And you don't even know that you do this, 
Uh, but let me kind of walk you through the process of how you figure out who an individual is. The first thing is this. What does that person say about who they are? What are their claims about themselves? So somebody might say, I'm an introvert, or I'm an extrovert, or I'm an athlete, or I'm this, or I'm that. So people make personal claims, and you accept those initially. You're going to accept those as reality, and then you're going to try to verify and validate those claims to see whether they're true or not. How do you do that? Well, you do that through the second way. The second way you figure out how somebody, who somebody is is what do their friends say about them? Right? So somebody might say to you, you need to go on a date with this person. Uh, they're really funny. They're really kind. I know their brother. I know their sister. You need to hire this person. They're such a hard worker. They're really good. And so now you're validating what their claims were. You're starting to validate with other witnesses, with outside resources. The third way, and you don't even know you're doing this, but you do this naturally when you interact with people. The third way that you figure out who somebody is is what are their interactions with other people like? You observe them, and you see whether they tell lies or whether they're honest or how they're interacting with other people. For example, I've always told my daughters, uh, if you go on a date, uh, watch how your uh, maybe future spouse treats the waiter. Because if they're, borrowing from David Wilcox, if they're rude to the waiter, then run. Get out of there. Like, just end the relationship. Because one day they're going to view you like the waiter, and they're going to be rude to you. You can know a lot about people by how they interact with others and observing that. And then the fourth way that you start to figure out who somebody is, you start to get a picture in your mind of who somebody is, is what's their role. So, for example, if somebody said to you, I'm a Navy SEAL, you would think oh, probably pretty aggressive, uh, fairly courageous, uh, is going to be a great protector. If somebody says to you, uh, I'm an astronaut for NASA, you'll say, really smart, love science, pretty meticulous. If somebody says to you, uh, I'm an accountant and a data analysis, you're not going to think that they're the life of the party. You, you, just, uh, you immediately know they're not going to be the most fun. Uh, they're going to keep everything kind of organized, but it's not like they're going to be telling jokes in the side. You, know? you immediately kind of form those things. Now, if you're not a Christian... The same way that you figure out who people are is the way we figure out who Christ is. It's the same way. And that's the critical question, right, of Christianity. Who is Christ? And how do we know who Christ is? Number one, who does he say he is? Who are his claims? He says, I'm the light of the world. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one who was to come. He, he makes all of these claims. And if you're, if you're not a believer, what I would suggest is you've got to figure out how to take those claims seriously. You really have to analyze those claims. Number two, you're going to figure out what his friends say about him or his disciples. And this is where Christianity gets tripped up. Because we can read what the disciples say about him and what the people in the New Testament say about him. But now the current disciples, the current people who are Christians, sometimes really misrepresent Christ. And so that part, if you're not a believer, that's probably what has thrown you off of track uh, from following Christ. But I would encourage you to do the third thing. And the third thing is watch his interactions. Read the Gospel of John and see why this King of Kings loves the poor. This King of Kings cares for the downtrodden. This King of Kings brought the women of the well who had been married five times and told her everything she had ever done. And remember, she ran back to the village and said, this man told me everything I'd ever done. The whole village came to know him. And then 
What's his role? We already read it in our liturgy this morning. But when Christ comes, he comes to fulfill a certain role. Or theologically, we talk about it like offices. But his job is to be the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, the ultimate king. And if you're joining us in Mitchell Road and you're just reading through the Bible, it goes prophet, priest, and king when we talk about it theologically. But chronologically, it's priest, king, prophet. Because the first priests were Adam, Eli, Samuel, Moses. That was the nature of the patriarchs and the priests. And what we learned when we read through that scripture is we need a better priest. We need somebody who's not going to die. We, we need somebody who can always advocate for us. And then we've just been through this process of kings. Uh, David, Solomon, Asa, Hezekiah. And what we're going to learn is this. We need a true and a better king. We, does, we need somebody who actually ruled justly and with compassion. And now we enter, for the rest of the Old Testament, we enter the realm of prophets. And what we're going to find is we need a true and we need a better prophet. We need one who actually know exactly who God is and be able to tell us exactly what the will of God is for our lives. And when Christ comes, he comes in those three offices, those three roles, as a priest, as a king, and as a prophet. Now, when we get to this text, we look at maybe one of the best prophets ever. I mean, he's right up there, you know, like Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, you know, the, the bigs. And Elijah, if you read 1 Kings 19, you're going to see him in a different light. Here's what I would encourage you to do. So many people have asked me while we've been reading through Scripture, kind of disillusioned. Andy, we thought like all of these people would be better than they are. Actually, this is the whole thing is a dumpster fire. Everything's a mess. Like no, nobody's like doing what they seem like they should be doing. I'm like, yes, because Christianity is not about creating superheroes. That's what Wagner and uh, Nietzsche, not to get too philosophical, but that's what Wagner and, and Nietzsche believed, that you could have in German, you could have an Ubermensch, which was a superman, and that we should all aspire to be this certain type of person. No, Christianity is different than that. Christianity isn't trying to create a bunch of superheroes. It's trying to achieve the glory of Christ. If, if you go home and Google today, um, and I think this is a pretty safe territory if you Google this, uh, celebrities are just like us. Go home and Google that, and you'll see like People or Us Weekly or one of those periodicals will come up, and they'll have pictures of celebrities, and like Denzel Washington's filling up his gas, and you know Justin Bieber's eating a burger, and somebody's getting their hair done, and it's a whole like niche of a celebrityism, which is catching celebrities doing something that looks like us. They're just like us. When you read the Old Testament, here's what you realize. Oh, these people are just like us. Hosea doubted. Jonah ran away from the will of God. Uh, Esther was confused and conflicted about her role. And here we see Elijah who's depressed. They're just like, they're just like us. Here he's struggling to know the will of God and to do it. And he feels like he's all alone and that God's abandoned him and nobody else cares as much as he does. They're just like us. And so here we go. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he killed all the prophets with the sword. And Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make 
your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow, then he was afraid. They're just like us. And he rose and he ran for his life and he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life. I'm no better than my father's. And he lay down and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a, at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water, and he ate, and he drank, and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose, and he ate, and he drank. And he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave, and he lodged in it. And behold... The word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out, and he stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him, and he said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king of Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Three questions we'll answer and ask and answer quickly. What do you need to know? What do you need to do? And what do you need to remember? First of all, what do you need to know? The first thing when we come to this text that you need to know is that depression or being morose, or being down, or being emotionally low, or feeling abandoned is a natural part of the Christian walk, especially when it comes to spiritual warfare. So here Elijah is. If you know the story, he had just had the victory of all victories, defeating Baal. He had just won. And when everything's going right, it doesn't mean you're always going to feel right. Because there is 
a lot of depression, a lot of lowness that comes with living in this fallen world and being forced to kind of look at it day after day after day after day. We live in a world that's broken. And so you're sometimes going to feel broken. Depression is a normal part of the Christian life. Uh, Isaac Watts, John Newton, Charles Spurgeon, um, St. Ignatius of Loyola, uh, Augustine, um, Margaret Clarkson, uh, Johnny Erickson Tata, Jonah, uh, I mean, pick Jeremiah, P pick your favorite saint. Pick the person that you think represents Christianity. I almost guarantee that they've struggled at some level with feeling abandoned and depressed and all alone, just like him. Now, interestingly, I grew up, I'm in between generations. And so I grew up uh, in this weird place when it comes to this issue. The generation above me, and th these are broad strokes, so forgive me. The, the generation above me would say, hey, we don't need Christian counseling. We don't need counseling. We don't need therapy. We don't need any medicine. You know, you just have to try harder, do better. So much so that when I told you about 10 years ago, I have a counselor that I go and see. I had several people of the older generation come to me and said, if my pastor had said that growing up, they would have immediately fired him. <laughs> and then you have my generation. And then you have the generation below me, which is like, I have five therapists, and I have 20, you know, and I'm like, we've gone the other way. And there is some balance. Each generation kind of sways and balances. And, and I want to say this as well. I said this in the first service. I've noticed it, and I'm not going to unpack this right now because I don't have enough time, but I've actually noticed a major generational divide when it comes to the Dobbs decision, the way that people are reacting differently to that. Now, here's the encouraging thing. Mitchell Road, the, one of the things I love most about this church is that we're intergenerational, and vastly so, from kids to youth to 20s to 30s to people in their 80s. I, I mean, I just love the diversity of that, and I want to give you a vision for this church where we could actually be the microcosm of conversation and civility to learn how to talk to each other about the issues that have divided us in this world and solve them with the gospel, but it means if you're 60, you got to take a 20-year-old out to lunch and listen to them. And if it means if you're 30, you got to take a 70-year-old out to lunch and listen to them. But we're, we're actually one of the few establishments that could actually make that work. And so here, we know that depression could be a normal part of life. We know also that depression reminds us that your salvation isn't dependent upon you feeling good. Isn't that good news? Your salvation isn't dependent upon you feeling good. Listen to what uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the good doctor. He was the personal physician of the queen before he became a pastor. So a medically trained doctor, then a pastor. He said, would you like to be rid of this spiritual depression? The first thing you have to do is to say farewell to it once and forever to your past. Realize that it's been covered and blotted out in Christ. Never look back to your sins again. Say, it is finished. It is covered by the blood of Christ. That is your first step. Take that and finish with yourself and all this talk about goodness and look to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is only then that true happiness and joy are possible for you. What you need is not to make resolutions to live a better life, to start fasting and sweating and praying. No, you just begin to say, I rest my faith on him alone who died for my transgressions to atone. Now, most of us, as Martin Lloyd-Jones 
highlights here. Most of us are going to fall into that category of spiritual depression. There's five different types of depression. There's a situational depression. You lose your job. You lose a spouse. Something situational, and you have a bad month. You have a bad year. You have a bad decade. There's emotional depression where you can just get overwhelmed with the world. There's physical depression. You could be uh, most people that are in the hospital or in ICU, they eventually get depressed. It's a physical depression. There's clinical depression. And that's a whole other category itself, one that Christianity has its answers to. But here, what's happening is more of a spiritual depression, more of a feeling alone. And this could happen through overwhelming guilt or sin or just living in this broken world. And for those of us that experience some kind of uh, spiritual or emotional depression, the first thing you do is what Lloyd-Jones says, to go back and to say, I don't have to live this life of guilt. My past is covered. That sin has been atoned for. The things I did do and the things I didn't do that I wish I did, I no longer have to keep repeating that record. Matter of fact, I'm going to preach my theology to my emotions. I'm going to preach to myself. Get up. All of your sins are atoned for. You don't have to live in fear anymore of being found out or being called a fraud. No, you can live in the freedom of the gospel now, not just when you get to heaven, but living in the actual freedom of atonement now. That's what Lloyd-Jones says. So that's what you need to know. Now, what do you need to do? There's three things here. First of all, if you struggle, you have to find a new daily rhythm. Look at what happens here at verse 4. He asked that he might die. Uh, Elijah, let's not clean this up. Elijah has a death wish. He, he, I mean, he's ready to call the whole thing quits. That's how far gone he is. And look at what happens. This angel comes to him and touches him and says, arise and eat. The angel comes, gives him a scone, gives him some water, and says, take a nap. He eats a scone. He takes some water, he takes a nap, and the angel says, do the whole thing again. Like, we're going to just establish some basics of rhythm, daily rhythm in life right now to get you healthy. I've always wanted to write a book on Elijah, and I think if I do, I'm going to call it, The Angels Put Me to Bed. I just love the picture of these angels tucking them in, you know, and then have another scone, have another muffin, here's some water, go back to bed. There is something about because we're bodies, we're souls that have bodies, as C.S. Lewis would say, there is something about understanding if your daily rhythms are helping or hurting your emotional, physical, and spiritual state, right? For example, about 10 years ago, I had a guy who came to my office. He was 70 at the time. He was five years retired, uh, and he was widowed, and he's now deceased with the Lord. I love this guy. And he came to my office, he said, Andy, I need to, I've got to see you for counseling. And, I, you know, I'm a young pastor. I'm like, gosh, I hope, I hope I can help him. I have no idea. Um, he was intimidating. And he said, I'm just so anxious. I'm just so depressed. And we started talking about, we talked about all the theology. We talked about all the stuff, you know, that he should know. And he knew all that stuff. And I said, well, tell me how you're spending your days now that you're retired. He said, well, I wake up about four or five, you know, with the sun. I have some breakfast. I turn on the news at six and watch that to about 11. And then I, I try to go to have lunch with somebody. I do some errands during the afternoon. I try to play a little tennis down at the Croc Center. And then uh, I get home. I usually have dinner. Sometimes I'll call my kids, and then I'll turn on the news and watch that from 6 to about 11. 
And I said, there's a reason why you're depressed. We're going to turn off the news. We're going to quit watching the stock market. You're going to quit worrying about everything that they're throwing at you all the time because your soul can't handle that. So part of the daily rhythm of life is just realizing what are we actually imbibing? And is it, is it helping what you're listening to, what you're watching? Are you staying hydrated? Are you eating? Are you getting rest? Are you practicing a Sabbath? Are you taking any time off? Like all of those things, you're made for a daily rhythm in life. Matter of fact, one author says it this way. When you feel depressed, it helps to actively change your environment. Go and do something different. Martin Luther conquered his depression by going outside to work in his garden. I was not going to put the author up there because I wanted you to think just for a second that was Oprah Winfrey. That's who it sounds like. It's R.C. Sproul. If you don't know him, he's pretty straight and narrow. And R.C. Sproul, this great theologian, is saying, hey, every now and then, you just got to change your daily rhythm. You got to do something different in your life. And so here, they start to establish a new daily rhythm, these angels and Elijah. And then the second thing that happens after the day, daily rhythm is you start talking to God. And so look at what he says in verse 10. I've been very jealous of the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken the covenant, thrown down your altars, killed the prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. Part of prayer is not just asking God for something. Part of prayer is you vocalizing to the Lord so you can actually figure out what you're thinking and feeling. And I bet he didn't even know this was all pent up inside him until he had the permission just to say to God in prayer whatever he wanted to. And it probably came out, and I, even I, am the only one left. He probably thought, oh, there it is. I feel alone. I feel like I'm the only one that cares. And I bet everybody in this room knows what that feeling is like. Probably everybody in this room has been on vacation in that time when, uh, you fed everybody and everybody runs out to the beach and you're the only one in the kitchen cleaning the dishes that everybody left and you think, I, I'm the only one left. Nobody else cares. Or maybe you've been uh, up at late at night at the office working on that big project or that big deal or that big contract and everybody else has bailed. You think, I'm the only one that cares about this anymore. I'm the only one left. Nobody else knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows my sorrow. All of us have that tendency to feel like, I'm the only one that cares about this family. I'm the only one that cares about this church. I'm the one who's doing all this work. And he felt the same way. Elijah, this great prophet, said, I, I'm the only one who knows. And that came out from him talking with God, from him vocalizing that. And now understanding it. And then what's the solution? What else do you need to do? Well, you got to form a community. And so look at what happens when the Lord says to him, verse 16, he says, now go, anoint this person king, anoint this person king, and then look at verse 16, and find Elisha and anoint him to be prophet in your place. His, God's solution to Elijah was to say, you're actually... Uh, you're not indispensable. I'm not saying you're disposable, but there's another guy behind who's ready to take up the banner just like you. And I will seek my glory with you or without you, Elijah. So go find Elisha and find your replacement. I had that feeling 
when I was at General Assembly this past uh, two weeks ago, and I was standing beside the pastor friend of mine at the very back, stretching our legs, and we looked out. There's, you know, 2,500 people there, whatever. And I looked out, and I said to him, there's a 1,000 other pastors in this room that could take my job, and there are 950 of the 1,000 would do a better job at my job than I am. <laughs> I maybe have the, uh, the drop on 50 of them. But you look around that room, and I'm like, there's so many incredibly talented guys here. I'm utterly dispensable. And that didn't make me depressed. That made me free. <laughs> like, everything's not dependent upon me. God will achieve his glory one way or the other. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And if Elijah fails, Elijah is coming right behind them. And then he goes on at the end to say, and there's 7,000 other people that I haven't even told you about yet who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You're not the only one, Elijah. Don't start thinking it all depends upon you. It's a beautiful picture. Now, can I just... Uh, can I just brag on us for a second without increasing pride? I think I can. I just love this church. And one of the things I love about it is the way that you will jump into brokenness when it comes to community. I had a couple in my office two weeks ago. They were struggling with the issue. They told me the issue. And they said, nobody else, I don't think anybody else knows. And I said, there's, there's three other couples I know of right off the top of my head that were struggling with the same exact issue. If I call them and they give permission, would you be willing to talk to them and them to you? And I call the other three couples, and all, it is a kind of a, could be an embarrassing situation. All three of the couples said, yes, yes, and amen. And it's all of a sudden like this community formed where others who are going through the same issue you are. Look, I know y'all all look pretty right now. You're a pretty looking group, and you're all dressed up, and everybody looks great. Well, you look around this room, all of us have the same stories of brokenness or shame or guilt or fears or loss or depression. And Mitchell Road is becoming, I think, that kind of community where we can truly love each other and not feel like we're the only ones and we're all alone. That's why years ago we started that ministry called Safe Places. Because uh, one day I had in my office uh, three ladies back-to-back-to-back -to -back -to -back appointments, and this was just the Lord's doing it. One lady, Andy, I've never told anybody else, I had an abortion three years ago. Next appointment. Andy, I've never told anybody else, nobody would understand, I had an abortion, this one was 18, I had an abortion last week, she was a student at Furman. Andy, I've never told anybody, the next appointment, literally, back-to-back-to-back. -to -back -to -back. Andy, I've never told anybody else, 30 years ago I had an abortion, I've never told my husband back to back to back and I said okay Lord you're doing something here and so I called them all back and I said there is somebody at Mitchell Road that knows what you know and has experienced what you've experienced and we started safe places where we told them if you just have the courage to walk through this front door of this house behind that door there will be people who are finding healing and compassion and confession to deal with whatever hurts or pains that they have and we started to form these groups, a group of people who have a prodigal kid, a group of business guys that had lost everything, a group of women that are dealing with the scars of pain and suffering. And I know what it's like, too. I mean, I remember, some of you probably know this story, not all of you, but I remember holding Daniel when he was a year and a half, 
on my kitchen floor crying because I didn't want to go here. And Elizabeth saying to me, just let me take Daniel. What's wrong? Let me take Daniel. And me saying, I, no, I'm not letting go of Daniel because I was convinced at that moment that my little toddler was the only person in this world I didn't have to perform for, that he just loved me for me. And finally, I was able to vocalize that and figure out that's what I was struggling with. And then I talked to pastors, and you know, I realized 95% of the pastors feel the exact same way. <laughs> it's a community. Now that once you vocalize it, you find a community that can actually heal you, can actually work with you through this. And then the church decides we have people that can help get you out of your loneliness and into a place where you realize I'm with the Lord and I'm with others who are going to get me home. So finally, and this will go quickly, what do I need to remember? Well, the gospel gives you a way out. I like what Elise Fitzpatrick says. Look at what she says. The depressed don't simply need to feel better. They need a redeemer who says, take heart, my son, my daughter. What you really need has been supplied. And when we come to communion in just a few minutes, it's what communion reminds us of. What you really need has been supplied for you. Life no longer needs about your goodness or your success or your righteousness or your failure. I've given you something infinitely more valuable than good feelings. Your sins are forgiven, and that can never be taken away from you because it was bought with Christ. Here's what else I need you to remember. God knows where you are. Look at the interaction in chapter 19, two times, verse 9, and then again in verse 13. What are you doing here, Elijah? But he wasn't seeking God. God was already there. God knows where you are. Right now, God knows exactly what you're struggling with, exactly what you're fearful of. If your distance from him is palpable, he knows that. If you feel like your spirituality has grown cold, he knows that. If you're so joyous and ready to do something for him and ready to follow, he knows that. God, did, he knows already. And if that's true, then go ahead and talk to him about it because you'll see that God's going to get you home. I love what Spurgeon says. He says, um, some people who I greatly love and esteem, who are in my judgment among the very choices of God's people, nevertheless, travel most of the way to heaven by night. What a great quote. Most people travel most of the way to heaven by night. Some of us are just going to have rougher lives than others. We might be a little bit more depressed. We might have a little bit more struggle, but you're going to get home. And then here's the last thing I want you to see very quickly. God is loud in his love and quiet in his comfort. God is loud in his love. And so we see in the middle of this text, which we haven't had the time to fully kind of delve into, we see the loudness of the earthquake the fire, the wind. First, God, the first thing he does is remind him with a show of force who he is. Don't forget all the power that comes with me, Elijah. And sometimes when I'm in this room, if I get lost in worship or my mind is starting to wander, I have to look at that cross. And I have to remember that's the loudness of his love, that what that cross represents is God saying to the entire world, that person is a sinner, so much so I had to kill my son for him. And that also shows how much I love them. It's the boldness and the loudness of love experienced at the cross. And then after that boldness and loudness, there's a whisper of intimacy. 
his spirit says in your spirit that you are God's child. It could come at a stoplight. It could come when you're laying your head to bed. It could come at the most odd places where you hear the Holy Spirit say, you are my child. I'm never going to leave you, and I'm never going to forsake you. It's normal. Let me, let me figure out how I, who I can pick on. Uh, I'm going to pick on Bill. It would be Bill and I are friends. It would be very normal, I think. Bill, you can tell me if I'm wrong. Um, if Bill and I were having lunch and we left lunch together for, for him to say, Andy, I love you. And I could easily say, I love you back. Like, I think that would be normal. If not, I'll pick somebody else if you don't. Okay. Um, but if we, were, if we were at PETA house having lunch and, and Bill stood up and says, hey, I just want everybody in this restaurant to know I love Andy Lewis. That's going to be awkward. And I'm going to go, and then I'm never going back to that restaurant, and I'm never having lunch with Bill again. <laughs> the loudness of that, the loudness of that is abnormal, right? That's why we like kiss cams, you know, when they show up. The, the, the loudness of a kiss. Also, if Bill, and don't do this, if Bill and I hug after the service, if he whispers in my ear, I love you, equally as weird. Because that's the thing of intimacy, but when you really love somebody, it's the loudness of an engagement party. And it's the quiet comfort of a whisper in your ear from a loved one you're intimate with. I love you. That you can accept. And that's what God does. He re as it says in Zephaniah, he rejoices over you with singing. And he quiets you with his love. So as it says in the Proverbs, hope deferred makes the heart sick. If, uh, if you defer this hope, you'll grow continually depressed. But friends, we're peddlers in the commodity of hope at Mitchell Road. And whatever you believe today, you come to this table, you watch the other people come up, all of us on the journey together, all of us sinners, all of us who claim Christ sanctified, all of us one day will be glorified. And we come to this table and just have a little bread and a little wine, and we go home and we take our naps, and we remember that everything that we need has already been won in Christ. Don't defer your hope. Hope again in God. Hope again in his plan for you, and hope again that he'll bring you home, and then live a life worthy of that calling. Father, we pray now that you would guide us and direct us as we come to this table and that you would give us everything we need and that you would help us to remember at this table your great love for us. We pray in your name, amen. If you look at this order of worship or it will be on the screen, let's say this communion liturgy together.